Well, I have been preaching a sermon series talking about the motifs, the images, the metaphors of the cross and the scriptures. I talked about the blood sacrifice, the ransom and redemption. And now we're going to talk about the courtroom image and the legal metaphor that, that seems to permeate the scriptures related to, uh, to Jesus and what he does. Courtrooms are pretty familiar scenes for, for some of us, more than others, but uh, we've seen them in movies, we've seen them in shows, some of us may have been in court for various reasons or, or been on jury duty. We, we've kind of understand the image, right? Uh, courts are really important and uh, they've been around for a long time. Ever since people have been in societies, there have been, uh, been challenges, right? In order to keep order in a society, you have to have certain laws, certain rules, and those have to be enforced, those have to be interpreted, and, and more than that, you get differences of opinion between people, right? Somebody feels wrong by somebody else, and if society is going to stay ordered, you've got to figure out a way to sort those things out. So as, as long as, as we have record with societies, they have certain ways of dealing with these kind of things. Um, a lot of times in communities... There would be judges or tribunals, groups of people or certain key people that would sit in a seat of judgment. Often there was literally a seat of judgment. Uh, when you came into town, there'd be a seat where someone would, cut, would sit to settle disputes in the town. If you were a king or you were a regional ruler, you probably had either a court in your own house or a courtyard in your own house. Or you had a seat that could be moved to the top of the stairs at the entrance to your house where you could sit in judgment of various cases. This might involve a single person. Sometimes it might be a, a group of people or the elders from the community. Um, but there were all these different systems in place. There were various levels of court, too. Certain courts would rule over religious things. Other courts would be for more serious cases. There would be oftentimes sort of levels. And we see this, right, in the... Uh, in the trial of Jesus, if you follow that in the Gospels, you see Jesus goes before the Sanhedrin, which is the, uh, the Jewish court. They were able to judge on Jewish rules, but they were only allowed certain punishments in the Roman Empire. When the Sanhedrin want Jesus to be crucified, they're not allowed to do that by the Romans, and they're not allowed to do that by their own Jewish law. They're not supposed to have people killed. And so they take it to Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to deal with it, so he sends it up the chain to Herod, who doesn't want to deal with it and sends it back to Pilate, right? There's this, there's this system in place uh, where certain things are ruled by certain judges. There's a hierarchy, a lot like the way we would appeal to higher courts uh, if we felt wronged in our judicial system. Uh, there, would be, there could be lawsuits between people. There could be disagreements. There could be laws that needed interpreted or enforced. Even in ancient times, there was still the same idea of a verdict and a sentence, right? A judge would have to say what was right and what was true and how the case worked out, and then he would have to sentence what was going to be done to make right what was wrong. Um, in fact, the words that we translate righteous or right in the Bible and, and the re words that we translate as justice uh, or righteousness and justice and justification, all those in the Greek are actually one word that gets translated differently based on context and the form of the word, but it's all the same word, trying to make things right. Now, it's interesting that, that we all know a court system, but really a court system hasn't changed all that much over the years. There's been certain advances, right? Now judges sit at a bench instead of a, a, a judgment seat, right? 
for a time there, we ju- lawyers had to wear those funny wigs to be in court. Uh, we got rid of those. Uh, thank- lawyers are very thankful for that, I'm sure. Now they don't have to wear the, the funny wigs. Uh, eventually, the court was set up much more structured. Did you know that there, uh, I learned this at uh, Colonial Williamsburg, that in courts, there's a bar, right? There's a section that sometimes is a literal bar still, sometimes it's a figurative, but there's a spot where you're not supposed to go past that unless you're part of the court proceedings. If you want to be on that side of the bar, you take the bar exam put on by the bar association. It's all a literal bar. Um, back then, they didn't have that same kind of structure in the court. We also have this great thing called innocent until proven guilty, which is not true all around the world. It hasn't been true throughout much of history. But the fact of the matter is courts aren't that much different. There's been courts for a very long time. They were very well developed in the Greek and the Roman times. And, uh, and so the Bible uses extensive, it uses this metaphor extensively. Uh, the Jewish leadership had religious rules. Some record about 613 rules out of the Old Testament that the Jews were supposed to follow and were supposed to be enforced. They could judge those. The Romans had their systems. So the Bible has all this in the background and uses the metaphor extensively. So I want to just give you five pictures, five images. This this can get very complicated. I want to give you five pictures to help you understand this imagery, particularly as it relates to the cross. So image number one, Spike's going to give us images here. Image number one is the day of the Lord. Is it there, Spike? Boom, the day of the Lord. The Old Testament prophets... Uh, they are writing in a time, especially the minor prophets, are writing in a time where um, Israel is either about to go into exile, like it, it's imminent, it is coming, they're going to be taken off, or they're writing in a time where they're already in exile and the prophets are trying to understand what's going on. And so they have this image, they have this phrase that they keep using over and over again, talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. That the world is not as it should be. And that someday God was going to come back and judge the world. God was going to judge the world and make the world right as it should be. And, and a lot of prophets are writing about this. But they're saying, you know, uh, a lot of people in Israel are saying, well, this is going to be great, right? All our enemies are going to be judged. All these other people that have been rude to Israel and messed with Israel and attacked Israel over the years, they're going to be judged. But the prophets say... Not so fast, Israel, because when God comes to judge, he's going to judge based on his righteousness, and we haven't kept up with that either. Listen to these words from the book of Amos, chapter 5. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into a house and leaned against his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? The Lord says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace animals of your fatted animals, the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look on them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. Uh, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. 
See, the people of Israel think they're safe because they're God's chosen people and they're really religious, right? They do all their sacrifices. They, uh, they go through, they sing their hymns, their songs. They go through all of the, the, the ritual. But the prophets say, no, 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 no. This is still not a good move for you. You should not delight and be that excited about the coming of the Lord. Why? Because that religion stuff isn't going to get you there. It's not a good thing for us. It'd be like running from a lion and running into a bear. You think you're getting away, but you are not getting away, Israel. God says he hates your feasts and assemblies. Take away your songs. But what's the phrase? Let justice, remember that word, justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What God cares about is how you treat people. Do you treat poor people poorly? Then that judgment's going to be just as much for you. Where else have you maybe heard this phrase before, let justice roll down? It's in a famous speech by Martin Luther King Jr. If you go back and read Martin Luther King Jr.'s speeches, you're going to find he quotes the minor prophets all the time. Because this is his view. This is where he gets a lot of it. Martin Luther King Jr. is a pastor. He's a preacher. And what he understands is that when Christians and when Americans sit by and let people be mistreated, it is not a good thing. We are responsible for the people around us. Isaiah 6 says this, Isaiah 6, 5. Isaiah's caught up in this vision. He's in the presence of the Lord. And he, and he can't even stand how holy God is. And he says, woe to me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I have unclean lips. I am not holy. And I live in the midst of people who are unholy. Right? I'm responsible personally, and I'm responsible for what my community does. Whew, that's tough, right? And that, that day of the Lord, that judgment that's coming of God is not going to be good news for Israel because they are guilty personally, and they are guilty as a community, and God is too holy to let that sit. He's too righteous, he's too righteous to not make things right. He just can't do it. All right. Spike, image number two, the judgment seat. When people judge, they sat on a seat. It's called a bema or a judgment seat. I already explained this to you, right? So this picture is supposed to be Jesus sitting on a judgment seat. Um, this seat would have been in the main court of the town or a special courtyard, but it's where you sat when you were going to judge cases. And the New Testament makes the point several times that Jesus sits on the judgment seat. Second Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is really important for two reasons. Number one, Jesus clearly sits in the position of judge. We don't like to think of Jesus this way, but he is. He's the judge. He gets to judge the case. And each one of us, in the end, is going to have to appear before Jesus to explain what we did with our bodies, what we did in our lives. But do you understand, in, in light of the Old Testament, what else this means? This means the day of the Lord has come. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is often associated with the Messiah who will come. The day of the Lord is here. Because Jesus is sitting on that judgment seat. We need to realize Jesus is that judge. So what is he judging? What is his verdict? Spike, image number three. Jesus says from the cross, 
It is finished. But what is finished? How is it finished? His life is finished. But but does he mean more than that? Colossians chapter 2 says this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What is this verse saying? You were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive. Trespass is another legal term, right? You violated some rules. You did stuff. You were in places you were not supposed to be. And you owe that. There are legal demands because of that. You have a debt. In those days, if you had a debt, you could be put in jail until your family could pay off that debt. Debt is another legal term. You owe something. But isn't it amazing what the text says? What does God do with your debt? He nails it to the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross, it is the ultimate act of judgment. Okay? And he judges in two ways. Everybody pay attention to this. Because this is, this is really amazing. Number one, Jesus gives a verdict when he's on the cross. And the verdict is you're guilty. When Jesus goes to the cross for you, you know what that means? You should go to the cross. You stand and in no way can you say, I'm not guilty anymore. Because Jesus proves that you are guilty. You are sentenced at the cross. You are sentenced to death. But here's the amazing part of the story. Jesus takes on your sentence. He pays the sentence for you. It'd be like a judge saying that you're guilty of murder, that you're going to receive the death penalty, and then the judge says you're free to go because he's going to take the death penalty for you. In fact, a second burden is laid, a second verdict is laid down. Not only are you guilty, but now your sentence is paid, but now there's another verdict in the scriptures. You are now holy, perfect, blameless, innocent. Not only is, are you forgiven, but your record is clean. Nothing on your permanent record. It's this amazing, amazing gift. We live in a society that does not like guilt. We, we are fueled by anxiety, but we don't like guilt. We don't like to say anybody else is guilty unless somebody wrongs us. We don't ever like to think that we're guilty. But Jesus says we are guilty, but in that same breath, he says, I'll pay for that. And we want to separate those. We like a Jesus who's loving but not judging. But understanding how Jesus judges only makes his love more apparent and more amazing. They're not opposites. In fact, the Bible takes the judgment one step further. Image number four. This is where we get beyond the legal metaphor of what's called reconciliation. This is one of my favorite paintings. It's a little hard to see. I have a print of this hanging in my office. I love this painting. Uh, anybody know who painted this? Rembrandt. It's a Rembrandt. That's right. This is Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son. So remember the story. The son wishes his father dead, goes off to another, gets his inheritance, goes off, blows his inheritance, comes back, and expects to just be a hired servant. You can see the son kneeling. I don't know if you can tell. He's got one shoe on, and it's all ripped up. He's all dirty. And the father is hugging that son, welcoming him as a son. 
reconciled to him. And I don't know if you can tell, but you're supposed to be the elder brother to the right there that's wearing a red cloak like the father. And then another man there, they're actually dressed as a Pharisee and a Sadducee in Rembrandt's painting. And they're looking on with contempt as this younger brother is being accepted by the father. This awesome moment of undeserved reconciliation. That the relationship is made right. This is difficult in the court system, right? Just because somebody is, is convicted of something doesn't mean the relationship is restored. Okay? If you lost a son and somebody's convicted of taking that son's life, you still don't have your son back, right? How do you have reconciliation? I don't know very many people who sued another person and are still friends with them after the lawsuit, right? The legal system can keep order, but to truly make things right, you have to have reconciliation. And that is very difficult to do because often people feel wrong. And reconciliation often means giving up what is fair in favor of the relationship. See, but that's what Jesus does. He goes the step further. You're not just forgiven. Okay, your sentence isn't just paid for. You get reconciliation. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God, who through Jesus Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the message of reconciliation. Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him, and entrusting us with the message of reconciliation. So what's God do? He reconciles us to himself. He fixes the relationship. Not just forgive it, but welcomes us home, even though he was the one that was wronged in the first place. In Christ, he does this. And he's doing it to the world. And this is the amazing part of 2 Corinthians. He gives us the ministry of reconciliation. He takes us and puts us in the position of, now you go out and make reconciliation. So the work of the church, and I really, this is my view of church right here. We're in the reconciliation business. We bring people back to Christ. We set people right with God. And we also need to be caring about reconcil- reconciling people to one another. This needs to be a place of peace and reconciliation. Now, image number five. The coming judgment. Coming judgment is the last piece. And the coming judgment says that Jesus is going to come day, someday come and continue and finish the day of the Lord. Listen to Matthew 25. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, now think about that imagery, right? This is not just talking about throne imagery. Implied here is a judgment seat. He's going to have nations, he's going to have people and nations all before him, and he's going to separate them. Sheep over here, goats over here, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Right? Someday Jesus is going to come and make all things right. He's waiting right now. He's letting us do our work of reconciliation, trying to bring grace to our world. But someday, someday we believe 
He will have enough. And he's going to come and make all things right. Not just right. Really reconcile with those sheep. Right? We're not just forgiven. We're giving an, given an inheritance. It's part of our kingdom because we're sons and daughters of that king. But he will judge the world. And he will make things right. And wrongs will be accounted for. And wrongs will be put to an end. True justice True righteousness, wholeness, and completeness in our world. I think this legal imagery is powerful. It's tough to consider. You've got to work on it. You've got to ponder it a little bit. It can get pretty complicated, but I think it can help us appreciate just how much Christ does for us. That he calls us guilty, that we can't stand before Jesus and say we're great stuff and we earned anything. But we can also say, man, God loved us and gave us grace in the middle of that. And then we can fulfill our calling to be reconcilers in this world. I pray that that messes with you a little bit, that you have to think about it and ponder it as we approach Easter, because I think it's going to make that celebration of Easter more full for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, for your grace. Lord, not that it's more than not deserved, it's ill deserved. We deserve the opposite of your grace. And yet you call us sons and daughters and you reconcile us to ourselves and to yourself and you're working in this world and I pray that we would be faithful to that calling. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.